So a lot of these, well, uphill and downhill, but a lot of these courses that have very mountainous terrains, I think that the weightlifting for me is not just a injury prevention thing, but actually part of the training to be strong enough to go up and down those hills without destroying your legs. Hey, today's guest is Pam Smith, a former winner of Western States, course record holder still at AC 100. She's won AR 50. She's been on seven national teams representing the USA for the 100 kilometers and the 24 hour world championships. And this year she was the team leader for the uh, 24 hour team as they competed in Taipei, Taiwan. I do want to give a content warning. We do briefly touch on suicide in this. And then I do also want to say that there is some heavy duty, like practical things towards the end where she talks about how she put together her training for the winning year of Western States and what you can do if you were to um, optimize your training for something like that. So stick around. It's a little bit of a longer episode. I hope you enjoy it. I'm Jay Scott Chapman. This is Extra Tomorrow's. Uh, welcome, Pam Smith. Hi, thank you. Uh, well, we're just going to jump into some stuff. We kind of uh, did some pre-gaming and talked about things we might want to talk about. One was about fitness. And uh, I, it reminds me of this humorous reel that um, Gary House, this guy on Instagram, has. And he's got like the cheat code for running hills. And he's like, uh, some people might prescribe lunges or like one-legged squats, but the real secret is fitness. It's like, if you're fitter, it's easier to run <laughs> uphill, straight, whatever. Um, can you kind of talk about your fitness's fitness ethos? Yeah, no. So um, always as I've been training, you know, I, I, I do say that fitness is fitness and anything that's going to get you more fit is going to help you on race day. Um, obviously, every course has a little bit of specific things to, to tailor your training plan. But when I go out and train, my main goal is to get as fit as possible. Um, and so I don't get too caught in the weeds as to like what specifically each workout would be. And um, in fact, for the majority of uh, my time while I was training, I ran with a lot of marathoners because they're very good at getting out and doing um, fitness type workouts for, uh, you know, intervals or tempo. And um, I think ultra runners and trail runners like to spend a lot of long time on the trail, but they don't necessarily push themselves all the time to do those interval workouts and the track workouts. And in fact, I know people who sometimes try to avoid those things very actively. Um, and I always kind of sought them out because I thought that they were a way that would get me fitter. And that was kind of what I was going for in terms of like reaching my, my best potential was how fit can I get? And so that was kind of like every little thing. It was like every run doesn't have to be specific to your one particular race. Like, like I said, about 90% or more, like my goal was just get out there and do something that's going to help my fitness and improve my fitness on that day. And when you when you took that approach for say leading into races that are, uh, have terrain specific skills, I guess for lack of a better term, like Angeles Crest or um, Western States, did you towards when you got closer to the race, did you put more terrain specific sort of things in there, like practice climbing or descending or whatever? Yeah, I mean, I would 
usually try to spend one day a week that was very specific to that race. Um, mm-hmm. So whether that was like a 24 hour and I was doing sort of long, slow miles or like you said, a hill workout and um, for, for a hillier race, something like uh, Western States or Angeles Crest, where you want to have, you know, uphill or downhill climbing in the legs, those kind of things. And so getting like really specific about the race, um, at least one day a week, um, probably as I got closer to the race. Um, you know, some of this overlaps because obviously if you do a long run on the trail and you do one hill workout, then that's kind of like both of those are specific to the training, but both of those also kind of going into that whole mantra of like just getting fit as well. Yeah. And anyone who's done a good bit of marathon training knows that you can get plenty of quad soreness off of perfectly flat ground. Like, yeah. And there's a lot of ways to substitute for things, too. Like, I live in Salem, Oregon. It's at 250 feet elevation. I don't have necessarily rocky trails outside my door. Even when I drive to trails, they're often the smooth trails. And, uh, like, so for training for something like Bandera, which is known to be a very rocky course, I actually ran on railroad trestle and the sort of the rocky side crop of the railroad tracks to try and simulate that, like, weird ankle feeling that you would get. So doing something that, you know, I would consider specific doesn't necessarily mean running exactly on that same terrain. Um, The same holds true for Western states because I couldn't midweek get out to big mountains and hills. Like I did my hill repeats on a five, like it had um, something like 350 feet of gain and it's a half mile and I would just do repeats on it all the time. So even my specific training isn't necessarily exactly emulating the race conditions. It's just um, trying to get my muscles and, and my fitness prepared for those specific conditions. Um, so kind of just using what I can to um, like be specific. But again, it's not like I was finding the exact type of trail of Bandera or Western States to be able to train on. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. You got real creative with it. Are there, <laughs> are there uh, other creative things you did like that where you, you know, um, where you had to like think outside the box in order to accommodate these things that you didn't have good access to? Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that I really believe in is the weight training um, component of it, and especially for the strength of the downhill running. So a lot of these, well, uphill and downhill, but a lot of these courses that have very mountainous terrains, I think that the weightlifting for me is not just a injury prevention thing, but actually part of the training to be strong enough to go up and down those hills without destroying your legs. Um, and the other thing for me is the treadmill. I know that's kind of a dirty word, especially amongst trail runners. Like we don't want to be inside. Like we hate that. But, you know, you can do a lot with a treadmill to simulate different types of incline or even now some of them do do decline as well. And you can kind of use that to, um, you know, get mountain training if you're not in a place where you have immediate access to mountains. Did you ever uh, bring any cinder blocks into the treadmill training? I've not done that. No, no, <laughs> no. Even... I have a treadmill that goes up to about fifteen percent, and that is nice. enough for me. Right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, you know, to hike on, um, and I, I do do some hike training as I'm getting ready for some of these more mountainous events where I know that some of the climbing I'm going to be doing is going to be a power walk or a power hike type thing, and so I do train for that. Whereas. Typically, just if I'm going out for, you know, my my typical week, I wouldn't, you know, train for walking. But 
I do add that in as kind of one other specific type of, of um, uh, gate, I guess, to, to use and have available. For the uphill training, for the hiking, are you doing it weighted or, I mean, are you putting extra weight in your pack or is it just the normal stuff? You're just kind of doing no, repeats or? No, either repeats on that hill that I had mentioned. I'll just, um, often one of my favorite workouts for getting ready for some of these was to just hike up the hill. It's like I said, it's about a half marathon and then run it down hard. So you're getting kind of that uphill strength, building the, you know, the glutes to push you off, but then you're also getting kind of the quad pounder part of the downhill. Um, and it actually is, is nice because it's not a particularly like physically or like cardiovascularly taxing workout. So you're not like overexerting yourself to hike up and to run down, but you are getting quite a bit of muscular adaptation for that. So Nice. And when, uh, when you're doing your weightlifting, how do you approach that to you? Is it like pretty much your core kind of movements all the time? Or are you doing like some of it's like raw strength and then you're moving more into a power phase or what does that look like for you? Yeah, no, I, um, kind of focus on what I call the big three and that's squats, lunges, and deadlifts. And you can vary those in, you know, dozens of different ways. A squat can be just an air squat and you can do lots of them. You don't have to use weights or you can obviously load a, a big barbell up and do very heavy with that. Um, you know, lunges, you can do all the different variations with the one legged or the stepping forward or the stepping back. And the same thing with, you know, do you want to do a jumping lunge without weight or you want to add some weight to it? And then I call it deadlifts, but really I'm talking about anything that's working your hamstrings. Um, so that could be hamstring curls. That could be sort of bridges with the sort of the slide out or the eccentric motion of the hamstrings or just doing the, the actual deadlifts themselves. And again, you can get into the one-legged deadlift or the kettlebell deadlift and Romanian and all these other different things. So, um, you know, I do vary it up just to have fun with it. Um, mm -hmm. And I do use some heavier weights. I think it's it's good to put um, some weights and actually move, move some metal, but, um, but, uh, no, I mean, like those are kind of like my, my three that I sort of rotate around in terms of like getting my lower body ready for that. And I mean, there's plenty of other things people can do, but just with limited time and like focusing on the big muscle groups, those are kind of my, like I said, my big three. Mm -hmm. And I know in the past you'd spoken about your Bermuda triangle injury or whatever, where yeah. it's like you had your back was having issues and then your, you had a labrum tear and something else. Yeah. I had a hamstring tear. So hamstring, that's what it was. Yeah. And so you, you had kind of sought out something that at the time it seemed like you thought was more woo woo than you were normally used to, I guess, especially working in the medical profession. And then, um, but it's, did you pick up that weight training stuff there or had you already done that? And then this kind of refined your technique or how, how no, does that No, I mean, I actually started weightlifting as an adjunct to running. Um, I kind of dabbled in it in high school, but I did it pretty seriously in college. It was just something that I always enjoyed and felt like for me, strength, you know, some people are just pure speed. And I feel like I was more like strength, like I was going to be strong enough to endure these things. And then the weightlifting always was just a part of that. 
Um, the hamstring stuff uh, started in 2018, and certainly I've had to do some additional rehab and therapy to work with the hamstring and to strengthen that. But honestly, I've had to back off of that because things like deadlifts were a little bit too much for me when I had that that hamstring tear. So um, I actually had surgery on August 2nd, and I'm um, now kind of what, like, four or five months out. And I'm just starting to get back into actually doing true deadlifts again, because everything has been hamstring strengthening, but at a much lower intensity and a much um, uh, gentler kind of lift. <laughs> nice. It doesn't even feel like lifting. Sometimes I joke that uh, the PT feels like being a fish flopping around on the floor. because you're yeah. Doing all these different strengths and, you know, putting your foot on a on a, a chair to do a bridge or something like that. Yeah. I, I know when I've in the past, I used to do more of, I guess, physical therapy movements with like bands and stuff. And I was like, what am I even doing? I don't get this. Like, cause when I was a kid, I would get the weeder weightlifting books, you know, and it would be like these, you just pick up giant stuff and as much as you can. And then now I'm like, I'm all tied up in this band here with it anchored to something over there and I got to turn my hip and I'm like, what am I doing? It's can be a, it can be challenging when you're used to just picking a weight up off the ground and putting it back down. Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes runners are scared of big weights because they're like, Ooh, I don't want to be this big muscly person. <laughs> and you know, when you're spending 15 plus hours a week or 10, whatever hours it is running, which is kind of shaping your body and, and guiding your body to be as lean and as small and as efficient as possible. And then you spend 20, 30 minutes a week doing some weight lifting with some heavy weeks. That's not going to offset those pressures from the running where your body is like, I need to be lean. I need to be small. I need to be as efficient as possible. So I don't think that's a big thing. The biggest thing I find to be the challenge with it is how to incorporate that with your training. Because if you go out and like go crush a set of really heavy squats, you're going to be sore the next day. And that makes running really, really difficult. Um, so for me, I'm kind of like, I do all of my hard stuff or on one day. So I would do my interval training and then do weightlifting after that. And then the next day have a very easy day. And so it's like, okay, yes, I'm sore. Yes, my legs don't want to move right now, but I only have to slog through some easy miles. I'm not expecting them to do anything phenomenal right now. And and so that way kind of, um, so that was the hardest for me. And the, the, the only thing too is, is that the, that soreness doesn't always just dissipate with one day. So you may be lingering with that for two or three days. So finding a way to incorporate that in the schedule, you know, for me, it was always better to do it earlier in the week so that by the time I'm doing my long run, I'm not starting with that kind of fatigue. Um, so I, I think that's the biggest thing is kind of finding the challenge and then how much can you lift and feel like you're getting the lifting benefit without impacting your running training. Because at the end of the day, the run training is the thing that's going to get you, you know, maximum fitness and benefit for running races. Mm -hmm. And so when you did the, you did a hard workout in the morning and then you would do afterwards, you would do the weight training. Did you separate that by hours to like kind of avoid the interference effect or, or was it like you just came back from the run and just started slinging metal? Um, it, 
it would usually be separated by a little bit more just because of the way things would work out, you know, <laughs> or because I wasn't that determined to get to the to the gym immediately after. So usually like a shower or, or especially because here in the winter time, you're often wet and um, a little cold. So to get dry clothes, eat something and then get to the weight room. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it wasn't like immediately like I, I've got to get there, you know, clock is ticking. But no, I tried to get I, I like to get things done as early as possible. Uh, um, I'm just I'm motivated. I enjoy it. But at the same time, like there's other things in life that distract you and motivation tends to wane as the day goes on, at least for me. And so um, when I can get things done earlier, it kind of ensures that it gets done. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd listened to an interview that you had right after you decided to retire and you were like, well, you know, I kind of took, you kind of took it easy for a little bit and you're like, well, now I'm back to running at 5 a.m. because you're like, you just liked it. And that's when your running partners were People also were up running and running. And then, yeah, it just, it was easier to, it's almost easier just to get it out of the way. But <sighs> I admire that so much. There's a group here in town. I joined this group so I could make more running friends but they like to do these runs at like 4.45. I'm like, oh, yeah. I'm like, you know, for some of us, some of us, that's still night. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I am fortunate because recently I, I found a, a friend who's a, a stay-at-home mom and her kids are in school. So she actually likes to go a little later in the morning. And I'm nice. like, oh, that, that actually works for me. I'll be okay with that. So yeah. We still go in the mornings, but it's not uh, before dawn. <laughs> It's not so bad to see where you're running sometimes, you yeah, know? Yeah. So, uh, That's great. but no, but like still there's a, a Monday group that I'm running with and they, they go, we left at 5:45, and you know, it's just, it's easier to get up and go with the group. I enjoy it. Nice. Yeah. I'm gonna have to try to be a little less, uh, you know, isolationist lone wolf here and wake up at 4:45 and go run up a mountain, I guess. Um, yeah. Good well, practice for some of those races, I guess. That, and not, I mean, I think in some ways that it's not the discipline of waking up in the morning. It's the discipline of going to bed at night. <laughs> you know, for, for that to be sustainable, you're going to have to be able to figure out mm-hmm. how to get the amount of sleep you need on a nightly basis. And the reality is that means you've got to put yourself to bed earlier. And that gets hard right. to do, especially if you've got kids or your spouse, other things where that's the time that you typically spend with your family. And then you're like, Hey, it's nine thirty. Good night. And they're like, "Wait, mm-hmm. but are we going to watch a TV show? Or are we going to watch a movie?" And you're like, "No, I have to go to bed." So it it does yeah. get challenging. But I think that that if you're going to be a early morning um, workout person, that 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 really means you've got to kind of transition yourself into being an early bedtime person. Yeah, yeah, and, it's tough. Yeah. It doesn't work well with socializing and being. Well, so- I, I I go to bed. I go to bed what I think is early. You know, yeah. like that nine thirty. But then I get up at seven thirty. So I'm still, I still think I'm getting up early. You know what I mean? So, uh, 10 hours of sleep. That sounds nice. It is nice. It's very nice. But, um, I did discover over doing that 200 miler of just getting one or two hours of sleep a night. But I was like, this isn't so bad. You know, I did that for like three and a half days and I was like, I'm not that tired. Um, but is it good for me? Nah, probably not. Yeah. Did you crash hard after? Not super hard, but I did go stay in Flagstaff for like two days after. And I tell you, recovering from a 200 at 7,000 feet, not a good idea. No. <laughs> <laughs> I had a little dizzy spell here and there. But, oh, uh, no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Well, I'm going to read I'm gonna read a little something from your blog. Okay. 
And uh, and then I'm just gonna get you to kind of kind of react and talk about it, or you can deny it, I guess too. <laughs> I mean, because you know, you no one can prove. Well, you could go on. The well, you could prove blog. it, but this goes way back. I may have changed. <laughs> All right, it's just a couple sentences. Oh, no, let's go. Yeah, <clears throat> let's go three sentences. Here we go. Maybe some people weren't meant to run 100 miles. Maybe I am one of those people. This year's Western States certainly challenged the notions I have of myself as a 100 mile runner. Is that 2012? 2012, June 28th. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that race went all kinds of wrong. <laughs> and, you know, when you're an ultra runner, obviously fitness and speed and running talent come into it. But the thing that I always prided myself on was, you know, the strategy, the decision making, um, like figuring out the puzzle. And I just screwed it up badly that day, you know, and it started from the very beginning because Western States is supposed to be a very hot race. And that was the year that there was hail in the middle of the race and over the mountain. I hadn't even packed a jacket or brought one with me down to the race. Like it never even crossed my mind. And it wasn't on. I mean, I checked the weather reports. It's not like, oops, I forgot to check, you know, and um and then just like things got off with the sodium and the hydration and being able to eat. And it was just like so messed up. And it was like, okay, it's one thing to say like you're fit enough to run this, but like, what if you can't put the puzzle pieces together to get the race correctly? And that's just how I felt after that. Um, I guess, I guess I'll refute that a little bit because I've had some success with a hundred mile distance and, and beyond after that, um, less than, so, less than 12 months later. Yes. So I, I think that uh, you can learn from it and maybe more so that I was able to learn more because of those mistakes and feeling that way. Like, like I, I don't want to feel stupid or look stupid. And there it was, is like, it just completely, you know, laid me wrong in that like a lot of stuff I did wrong. And it was like, okay, like I can't just be loosey goosey about this or kind of cavalier when you're showing up for the starting line of a hundred miler. Yeah. It's one thing to check the aid station, but it's, it's another thing to have a serious plan. And I needed to do that. And I think that um, sort of, I, I don't want to call it a failure. I finished and I still like got through the day and I think I, I struggled beyond it, but it still was a disappointment. And I think that disappointment like kind of inspired me to be like, how am I going to attack every race now with like a very serious plan that like makes all the sense and puts all of the elements together. And I think after doing that, like I, I was even more successful um, in, in that distance and beyond. Yeah, you really nailed it afterwards. I got to say, probably for some context for folks that don't know the whole story, this was back when Western States used to weigh people and you got held up for like two and a half hours, I think, at an aid station trying to argue and beg your way out of there. And then eventually after you, uh, you know, asked someone else, then they argued with the person who was keeping you there and then they finally let you through. And according to the comments, you are not the only one who had the same problem at the same aid station. So, um, and it's, you know, it's, we don't do that anymore. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. And I mean, this is, uh, you know, that was Craig Thornley's first year taking over and kudos to Craig. Um, but I think because of my situation and what I went through, uh, like he implemented some changes. So I think I, I, I kind of my situation and all of that going wrong sort of was the catalyst to get some of that going and saying, like, why are we doing this weigh ins? And like, how is this helping our runners? And in my situation, it, it really wasn't helping me. I mean, it was actually detrimental to kind of my overall performance and race and of course my mental state during it and you know how I viewed things afterwards um of course you know I wasn't in the best shape if you are gaining seven pounds like you've got other issues but you know I actually my issue was because I was so cold I was drinking too much salty fluid I kept drinking broth at every soup so the the worry with the gaining weight is that you're going to be hyponatremic and I actually got tested at the finish line and I was like on the high end of saltiness. So like it, it was quite the opposite. Yes, I was retaining fluid. No, I wasn't doing my fluid and electrolytes correctly, but I wasn't in any danger to myself. Like what I really needed to do was to drink more water and just plain water. And at the aid station, because they were so worried about me, they like they wouldn't even give me water. And so it, it's like you can't flush the salt out of your system if you don't have any water to pee it out. And yet then they were saying, no, you're already overhydrated. We can't give you water. So like the, the system had some flaws with it as, to, as well. I understand it was there for good intentions, but like it, it wasn't working in the way that it needed to for me. And I think Craig, like after hearing my story about that was like, what are we doing with this? And let's, um, let's make the changes that we need to, to make this for the runner's best benefit. So. Yeah, that's great that they, actually changed, uh, you know, out, you know, cause some people will just keep doing the same thing over and over again forever and be like, well, this is just what we do. Um, and I will say, I think that it was a little bit of destiny intervening that it was like, not only did you mess up whatever you could take responsibility before, but someone else was just like, ah, push you down even further for like two and a half hours. And then you were just like, and then there was a moment where someone was like, you need to quit. And then they were like, she's out. And then someone was like, well, hold on. And then, so you were like right there. I mean, sure. Like, I think you said that it was a shit sandwich with a cherry on top. Um, but like it, it, it got as bad as it could get, but you still finished. And then that, you know, it seemed to have focused you. And then, you know, I think you won AR 50 and what was the other race leading into your victory at Western States in 2013? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't do a huge amount of racing prior to 2013. I, I kind of wanted to stay fairly fresh, um, and just focus on the training for that. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I definitely had kind of like systemic or a systematic, uh, kind of strategic races to race there. And, um, just kind of looking at the history, you know, AR 50 used to be a big, um, kind of like lead up race for people and uh tracy garneau had had won it the year that she won western states and same with ellie greenwood and it was like okay this is a good good prep race there to do um but i i actually avoided doing any um may races so i know a lot of people used to do me walk or some of these other 100ks in may and i didn't want to do that because i wanted to have like a, a more solid training block so i had just done a local 50k um that i felt like i could recover from pretty easily easily. Um, and then, like I said, didn't do the big, um, hard 
uh, race. And I didn't even go to Western States training camp that year. I felt like a 70 mile weekend was just a little bit more than I'm accustomed to. And while I understand it can be good training, I think like also there's a temptation to get sucked in with your friends or especially if you've got, uh, you know, people looking at you as, you know, kind of one of the elites or something like that. Or, and I, I was like, I, so I, I didn't even go that year and just kind of did my thing um, like home workouts and, um, what I worked for. And so I, I don't know my exact mileage that weekend, but I, I would say it was probably closer to 40 miles over the three days rather than 70 miles over the three days. Nice. Um, yeah. And when you, uh, so it sounds like most, you know, you're saying fitness is fitness, but it seems like most of your training is, uh, when it comes to aerobic training, you know, outside of weightlifting would be, is all running or did you, do you do any cycling or anything like that? Or have you? No, I mean, I, I've done some cycling just for fun, but I don't consider it a training thing. I have people that like to cycle and I'll sometimes join them, but no, it's, it's not part of my training yet. For me, it's, it's running or like I say, hill walking, some sort mm-hmm. of, some sort of hill walking, but I still consider that run training because I'm training for a specific running race. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So in 2018, you wrote an article like weighing the pros and cons of back-to-back long runs. Yeah. And you were kind of, uh, you kind of settled on that overall you didn't care for them because they took time away from family, you know, for folks that have that. Um, You could get the same benefit from like a single longer run. And then the fact that you would make them a little shorter than you would make one single long run, you wouldn't get that kind of like that you couldn't get in trouble by doing things incorrectly, like fueling wrong, you could kind of get by with it and you wouldn't run into the same issues that you would get into with the longer runs and they could suck the joy out of the next week as well. Do you still hold on that or, or is there yeah. still there's some wiggle room in there? What do you think? No, I mean, one to tell people how to train like if you have something that works for you by all means go out and do that i also think that the most important component of training is actually probably not the fitness that you get from it but the confidence that you get from it like if you line up on a race and you're like i did the training i got this you're probably going to have a much better day than if you're like, uh, I don't know about this. This might not go so well. Like, what about that run I didn't do? Like, you've already got a, a bunch of these negative thoughts in your head. And so when things do go wrong, it's like, yeah, that's because I'm not fit. I wasn't trained for this, blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I think having that confidence. So doing the back-to-back makes you feel confident. You're like, wow, I this is the training I needed for that. I'm, I'm all for it. For mm-hmm. me, I don't think that, like, you have to have that as a way to be successful in long distance running. Um, Like you said, if you're doing a 20 miler and a 15 miler, you know, on a Saturday and a Sunday, it might add up to 35 miles of running, but you've got this big break in between them where you get to eat and refuel. And most people can slog along for an hour or two or so and kind of, you know, quote unquote, fake it through the last five to eight miles maybe. But if you get, you know, 20 miles in, to a 30 miler and you've got 10 miles to go and you've been faking it for two hours, like you are in big trouble for that. So Mm -hmm. you've got to figure out 
how to make those first 20 miles go by very smoothly so that you can get through those final 10 miles of a 30 miler. And, you know, that, that goes a lot more into the, the pacing, the tired legs, the, the GI issues and um, sort of all those things. And, and I think a little bit of the, the mental toughness too. Like if you, if you're like, I, I got to make it through 30 miles today, uh, you, you kind of, you've got a lot longer to sort of stay out there and slog. So I've always found that I could, I could get what I needed out of that and, and have found some benefits to doing that longer run on one day. And then, um, you know, having a, either a very easy day or an off day on, on the, the following day. Um, but no, I'm not going to say that's the only way or that you shouldn't do them. Um, and like I said, if, if people have found that that's the way that, helps them to feel the fittest or that they feel the most confident then that way, then I'm all for that. Yeah. I'm, I'm that, I agree with you. I think that doing them, well, for me, I would say I get the most benefit from them where it's like, uh, if I do one, that's a little smaller back to back. So like three hours, then two hours, maybe then I'm like that one for the first time of the year sucks. And I'm like, (laughs) And I'm like, oh gosh, why? And then, uh, and then I do one that's even longer, you know, like maybe a month later or something. And then I'm like, oh, this isn't so bad. Cause you, you know, you kind of learned like how bad it could suck before. And then you're kind of like, okay, let's take it easy here. Let's not make it too harder, make it harder on ourselves than we need to. Um, but then I think that once you've got that in there for me, at least, then it's like, I don't need that for the rest of the year. Um, cause then I've kind of convinced my body, like, see, you didn't die. It's fine. <laughs> and then like my brain is like, yeah, you did that. Like it's, and so when you show like you said, you show up at the start line, you're like, I've been doing the training. I can do this. I mean, I've already done like a 36 mile run on one day and then a 13 mile run on the next day. So I can surely knock out this hundred miler or whatever you're trying to do. But the, I see a lot of people that are really pushing the, the limit on this where they're just like. Well, if you're going to do a hundred miler or a 200 miler, you got to have like every month you have to have long back to backs. I'm like, I don't know. That sounds like a lot. Sounds like could be psychologically, you know, psychically demanding. And then also like asking for trouble, you know, like, uh, like with injury. Yeah, it definitely takes away from the recovery if you're doing the long. But but I do like what you said about um, doing kind of like a little bit shorter back to back early in the season, because when you're starting your training, you're not going to be ready to just go out maybe necessarily on the first weekend and do a 25 miler or something like that. So if you can do that 10 to 12 and then, you know, follow that up the next day, you, you can get sort of more miles in the weekend than you would be if you just had to do one long, you know, one long slog. And especially, like I said, if you're just starting to work up to your fitness, your fitness goals or your race, your race readiness. Nice. Well, just let me uh, pivot on this mental to kind of talk about mental things. Uh, one of the things that you had spoken about was uh, as you started to look into athletes as they age, um, you you found that a lot of it was, it seemed like around mindset that basically folks were like, well, I just don't feel like doing it anymore. And then, you know, like people are like, I got slower because I don't run as much anymore and I don't run as fast and I don't care about all that. And so um, it's, it's like, it almost has nothing to do with age. Just people are burned out, I guess. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to 
to say it has nothing to do with age is somebody who's going to be 50 this year. Um, mm-hmm. Like there's definitely a difference in the way your body behaves than, than when it, you know, when you're younger. But I do think that there's a more of a sense to get into that mentality of like, oh, I'm too old for this or I'm, it's too hard. Or especially if you come, if you get injured, then it's like, and you get out of shape, it's like, oh, I, I don't need to do this anymore. I think the other component of people who are older is that they've been in the sport for longer. So it's not as new necessarily as fresh. And it's, you kind of know what the pain is, what the struggle is, what, what you're going to have to sacrifice to go through that. And so when you add one more speed bump or one more hurdle, like an injury to that, you say, gosh, do I want to sacrifice all this time away or feeling tired and have to do all this? Like, maybe I don't need to do that anymore. So I think also like just your years of experience kind of take a little bit of that, like, excitement and newness away from it and you know we're humans we get bored we want to we want to bounce around we want to do things change new jobs change jobs change where you live change your car whatever it is like we don't just always stay in this and so I think that like as you get older too you're like okay if I've been doing this for 10 years or whatever it is you're like do I need to keep doing it so there's a whole bunch of mental aspects I think that play into that um but no, I, I mean, we're seeing people now, you know, the jackpot ultra this year, the hundred mile USATF had four guys over age 80 that completed the hundred mile run. And then you're like, well, I'm, I'm sitting here saying that I'm 50, I'm going to be 50 and I'm too old for this. But these guys are 30 years older than yeah. me and they're still out there. running. <laughs> right. Exactly. Like you can't make that excuse. You can't make that excuse. And anything that I like do to say, oh, I'm too old or whatever, like that is a, a mental mental issue or an excuse. Um, and that's not to say that people don't get into physical issues. You know, I had to have hamstring surgery. Other people have other physical issues. So I'm not trying to say, oh, everything's all in your head. Obviously there's, there's physical things that do come up as you age. And I don't, I don't want to, you know, cast those aside or just say, oh, you're faking it. That's not real. But I think if you kind of look at the overall picture of people who are aging out of the sport, it's probably more just because they've sort of, decided that they no longer want to put in that kind of training, those kind of miles, that kind of pressure on themselves to do all of that. Um, And then they kind of gradually reduce things. And like you said, it's kind of a use it or lose it. Fitness, you know, is like something that you sort of have to invest in on a very continuous basis. And if you don't, it gets worse and worse and worse. So it just becomes this sort of the self-fulfilling prophecy. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm slower now. I can't get back to that. Well, if you're not doing the speed work and you say, well, I'm too slow to do speed work, but if you don't do the speed work, you're only going to get slower. And so it kind of just um, keeps fulfilling. So, uh, you know, you have to be in that mindset of like, I'm, I'm going to still be an athlete. And, and if people don't want to be, that's fine too. But it, it's not necessarily because it's an age related choice. It's, it's because it's just a personal choice. Yeah. And, and the folks that are, you, I'm just going to say using that as an excuse, because that's what it is, is that like everyone gets injured. You don't have to be old to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know what you can't do when you're young? Be wise. So, <laughs> I mean, like a lot of races, people say, oh, you know, the reason I won it this year was because I had done it before. And like, and now I knew all this, knew all the stuff, you know, or like people say, oh, you know, when Killian Jornet and Unbreakable, they say, man, he's got all the fitness in the world, but he's never done this race before. Right. And so uh-huh. he's not going to win probably. Um so I don't know. I just, I, the folks that I hear using that excuse, they're usually not, they're not like 
I'm done with the sport. And then they're, they're leaving. They're people that are in the sport. They're just like, well, I didn't do as good as last year. It's like, well, what's changed? And they're like, well, I gained a little weight. I stopped doing speed work. I'm like, well, what did you expect? I mean, yeah. it would be the same for you if you were 16, you know, like don't blame it on your age. But anyways. Yeah. No, I agree with that completely. Yeah. It took me reading a whole book called, I think it's called Fast After 50 by Joel Friel. Oh, and, okay. basically, and basically the book is like, work out, man. Out. Yeah. <laughs> it's, basically, it's basically like, hey, work out, do some speed work. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, it makes sense. I, I mean, whether you're slower than you were 20 years ago or not, there's always room for improvement from where you are today. So, right, um, right. You, you know, and, and to say like, yeah. oh, I, I just can't, my age is keeping me from that. Like, yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's more of a personal choice thing. Yeah. It must be harder. I, I don't have the problem of having ever, I haven't, I started later, like started running when I was like 33, but also I've never really performed very well, you know, like, <laughs> so I don't have any, I, I still have PRs in my future. That's what I'm saying. Cause I'm only 47. And so I'm like, I, I was like, I can still PR my 5k, take a mile, whatever, like all that stuff. Um, and so when I talk to people like yourself who have performed very well in the past and, you know, then I'm like, well, at some point you just got to declare PR bankruptcy, you know, and say, yeah. we're starting over here. Um, the one advantage also is that, you know, podiums are, you know, they get a little, they get a little less crowded when you're older. Yeah. That's, that's kind of what I'm actually looking forward to turning 50 because 40 is like good for the people in their forties. Right. But like, it's still not considered like old, but like 50, like you just immediately have the cred when you're up there and you're like, I'm going a hundred miles and I'm 50 years old. You're like, yeah, all the cred. Like, like the trail cred comes in. You're like, Oh, she's still out there doing it. And then at yeah. that point, then I think kind of like the time goals are a little bit out the window. And then you're like, okay, now I got to finish this. Cause like I said, I'm, I'm like the 50 year old out there that's trying to finish this, whatever. So I admire all the people that are, you know, still out there doing it um, in their, their, upper years, their older years, or as they're aging, whatever, and haven't yet let those excuses, like, come in and, and stop them from pursuing those things. But no, um, you know, I hit um, the hamstring issue, uh, like started four or five years ago. And right about the time where I, I think that the true aging issues, you really start to see a little bit of a slowdown and stuff from that. And there is a mental battle that I, I had to deal with. And um you know, because it, it is weird to sort of say, like, you know, the thing that kind of I think a lot of runners are inspired by is this idea that you can still be better or that you can do better. Or like you're saying, there's still PRs in your future. And I got to a point where I was like, I will never be better than I used to be. And then it's like, well, if I've already hit my peak, if I've already hit my maximum potential and it's literally all downhill from here and I've got to work just as hard to not be anywhere near as good. Like, what am I doing here? And that coupled with having a lot of pain while I was running because of my hamstring problem really created a lot of motivation issues for me. And it was like, like, what am I doing? What am I, what am I doing this for? Um, and I think that, yeah, coming out of that was kind of like you said, like, I like your term, the, the PR bankruptcy it was like, okay, like, let's not compare to the past. Like, let's say like, instead of time goals, like, what is the accomplishment goal? Like, 
Can I complete a hundred miler? Can I go back to, you know, 24 hours and maybe hit a team qualifier or just endure for 24 hours? That in itself is a big feat. And so kind of looking at sort of like more of these accomplishment goals rather than a very specific time goal and definitely not a place goal because I can't control like how the other people in the race are doing. And like I might execute a race really well and it might be especially great for somebody who's like in my age group, but that could still mean that there's, you know, 20 people younger than me that are much, much faster. And so it is hard because I did used to look at races as like, what was my time goal and what is my, like, can I get on the podium or can I win this race? And so there's been like a little bit of a mental shift, but I think I needed to do that in order to kind of get out of that slump of like, oh my God, I'm so old and washed up. I can't do anything anymore because that's not Mm -hmm. the truth either, you know? So, um, but that there was a little bit of that transition, (laughs) that transition period that I had to work through. Did you, do you feel like you've had to rearrange your identity or give up part of your identity or reassign a new one or how, what did that look like when you were going through all this existential crisis? Well, so, kinda... so my handle has always been run doctor for, you know, like social media and stuff like that. And so I, I actually retired from, from medicine. And so then it was like, okay, I'm not running and I'm not a doctor. <laughs> and like, this is how I've identified myself for 25 years. So who the hell am I now? And, um, you know, but I, I think it was, it was not necessarily, um, re-identifying myself, but how do I identify with those categories? And so like, like I said, as the runner, it wasn't like, okay, I have to run for some sort of performance or like a very specific goal, but like if I'm getting out there with my friends, I'm still enjoying outdoors. Like I can still be a runner. I can still be in this sport and, um, still have some, you know, I would think that for most people thinking like if you're 50 with the goal to run a hundred miles, like that's still a pretty lofty goal overall, you know? And, and so like kind of reframing some of that stuff and, um, same with, even with medicine is like, no, I, I still have, you know, the medical knowledge. I'm still involved in some research stuff. Like I haven't just like gotten rid of that component of me. Um, so, you know, it, it, it does take some working through though. Like it, it, it was weird. I call it my midlife crisis because kind of everything hit all at once. And it, it was like, whoa, like it, it, it's not just the midlife crisis, but it's, it's like, crisis of self-identity and and like what what's who are you and who do you want to be going forward and you know I'm not ready to say that I don't want to be a runner anymore and that was kind of the choice it was like are you a runner or are you not and it was like being a runner doesn't mean that you have to do like every single thing that you used to do like there's still other ways to identify as a runner and be part of that community um and so you know and and, like a big thing for that too is um you know kind of doing uh i've done a lot more crewing and pacing um more so than even racing in the last two or three years and like that's been really nice to be sort of on the scene but um, and part of it, but not necessarily, it's not my goal. And then, you know, I'm also taking on the managerial position for the U S 24 hour team. So like, I've kind of had to find these other ways that I can be involved in the run and the ultra community as well as just being sort of like part of the elite level racing, um, uh, team or, or group. Heck yeah. <laughs> I, the, the way I look at it from the outside is, uh, is, 
you know, when I see legends like yourself and they're kind of struggling with their place in this world, I'm like, I don't know if they know how much we look up to them. And like, it's like, you're the, the soldier that was out there doing battle and you kicked everybody's ass and then everyone's told stories about you. And, you know, you come back 20 years later with all these scars and stuff, but now you've got, now you've got a robe on. You're like a queen or a, you know, a lord or a lordess. I don't know what, uh, a lady, um, you know, and you, you're kind of looking down on us from the balcony and like, oh my gosh, there's Pam Smith. She came to the race. Look at her. You know, it's like, it doesn't matter if she jogs for 24 hours. We don't care how fast. Like, we know who she is. You, she, you know who she is? She's the uh, the current course record holder at Angela's Crest still. Um, <laughs> coming coming up on 10 years old now. Yeah. But, well, thank you for saying that. I, I assure you that I'm not looking down on anybody. And a lot of the yeah. time it's like, I feel like I'm a fraud or I'm a fake or something. But so it's like, oh, yes, I used to, you know, run in the 20 hour range or, or less at Western States. And now it's like, oh, tw- sub 24, that would be a, a fabulous day. And is like, don't expect what I used to do. And so mm-hmm. then it's kind of like, Ugh don't like don't don't look at me like I, I'm not that person I used to be so like to hear you say that is very nice thank you oh you're welcome you know I've I'd, I'd like to be a student of the sport and there's there's some uh depressing depressing outlooks that some folks have had where they're like I think even I was reading Craig Thornley's some of his old stuff and he was like you know I don't know what I'm gonna do when I have to you know come to grips with it I ha- kind of saying goodbye to running in the sport and then I think it was right around the same time there was some high-performing runner out in that area who had uh, who had done really well, and then couldn't couldn't deal with that not being great anymore and committed suicide. And uh, I think that hit the community really hard. And uh, yeah, I could see how that be that could be very difficult for yeah. people. Yeah. So that that runner was actually from Portland and was in the medical community, or at least the one that I think you're referring to. And um, and so like that, that hit home for me definitely very hard, you know, and I think that is why like it was very important. And it's very important for all of us to like kind of figure out this place of what running means to you without it necessarily being this sort of like performance based um, like importance, because uh, no matter where you are, how great you are, like age is going to hit you at some time injury is going to hit you at some time and you're maybe not going to be able to do the things that you used to be able to do but um like you you've kind of got to like find your place and your peace with that too and mm-hmm. otherwise like you are going to deal with these issues and it's it's hard like i'm not going to say it's easy like I, I, I like i had a hard time with it a little bit you know is you do kind of have to like things that used to be easy for me weren't easy anymore. Like I used to go run a 50 K as a training run in my hometown in a costume. <laughs> it was for fun. You know, I thought it was for fun. And I look at those times now and I was like, I never even thought about those times. And now like, they're not times that I could achieve on like my best day in my best gear on the best conditions. And it was like, go out there dressed as Cleopatra and run a 350 or something like that. Like it's a thing to me. And so like I do in some ways now also like appreciate that a little bit more because I I don't think I appreciated then. It just, it felt easy at the time. And it was, it's, it's sort of weird to like, to look back on that. And, you know, this, this morning I did a little bit of speed workout. I am getting out there and doing some speed 
And um, like my speed workout pace is about what my 50K pace used to be. You know, like mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. very humbling. It's very humbling. But at the same time, like I know that like if I give up on that altogether, like I, I like it's only going to get worse or I'm not going to get the mental joy of being out there. And so now, like I said, looking at it as like, yes, I'm still working. I still can feel proud of myself for getting out there in the rain today and doing that. And I had um, good company. So I got to have a social component to it. And so there are all these other things that I can get other than just having like a time that I could log in my log book and say like, yes, I did my 400 and this time or whatever. And so, um, you know, all those careful, like meticulous log books from 10 years ago, like the, the number one thing is I do not ever look at them. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't, know anymore like i i have in my head i know but um like i i i don't want to see what i used to do that that that's a little too hard for right now oh i uh well does let me ask you this does it provide any uh solace or joy or whatever to know that you are able to offer like all of the knowledge that you have and like you know helping people with their 24-hour journey and uh these sorts of things like the you know, the inspiration of just like looking through your results and being like, or I'll say this, like uh, listening to your interview, uh, I was listening to your interview talking about winning Western. Uh-oh. I'll, I'll get that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> talking about, you know, just how you went through Western States and, you know, like that's all of that stuff is very inspiring and useful information. Um do you do you find uh, any joy in all that, or is it, uh, or is it, does that help to offset some of the the stuff that you lost in performance? I guess, or you feel yeah, like no. you've lost. Like I think that that helps me to stay involved. Like I said, in the community, and that's super helpful to me. But like even back in 2013, when I was running at my best, um, I never was like, "Hey, I've got this top secret stuff that I'm not going to share with somebody." It was like mm-hmm. this is this is us all reaching for kind of like the best performance we can give. Um, and I was learning from other people and like, I was happy to give back to that and like, certainly happy to continue to do that. Um, I do like that. I feel like I have a place in this sport and that I do have a place, sorry about that, have a place uh, to, um, you know, still, still help others that are, that are learning. Um, yeah. And so, um, I don't know. Like I, I, I'm happy. Like I said, I've never had any secrets that are like, this is right. my special training secret and I'm not going to give it to my competitors. Yeah. I use this one. I don't want to call out the person that you were talking to, but basically they were like, you were like, before I go into the canyons, you got to have three bottles and, you know, and so it had to be like this. I'd have two in my, <laughs> two in my, you know, in your AK vest, your the old Anton Krupichka ultimate direction vest. You have those old, ultimate direction nipple bottles that they don't make anymore. Man, every, everybody misses those one. bottles. I have one left and it's got a little crack around the edge and I'm like, I'm uh, not throwing that away. Uh, you need to like 3d scan that thing. We need to print it out. That's a good idea. Yeah. Um, so you had all that stuff and you were like, well, I gotta have, you gotta have three bottles to go in the canyons. And this person said, well, I don't like to carry three bottles. And you were like, I don't like to carry three bottles, but that's what you got to do to win. <laughs> right. And I was like, and I, so I use that 
something, uh, you know, different versions of that quip all the time. I'm like, people are like, well, I don't like to wear hats. I was like, well, you know, if you're going to come out here and run for eight hours, you got to cover your head with something. Like, I'm not going to carry an umbrella. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to do it because I like to. Yeah. Right. So. <laughs> we say it's fun, but it's not fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now we're going to come to the part where uh, I was going to say, or I am going to say, I'm going to, if someone showed you their training plan leading up to Western States and um, kind of getting your feedback on there and they said, oh, this is what I've done so far. What are the non-negotiables when it comes to these topics? And we'll start off with weekly volume. Um, you know, I don't like to set a specific number. Um, I mean, I can give you my numbers. I averaged 78 miles a week leading up to Western States in 2013 when I, when I won it. Um, and then I did, I had this plan that my last three peak weeks, which were three weeks out from tapering, I was going to do 300 mile weeks in a row. And actually I got to three 100 mile weeks in a row and I got to, uh, 287 miles with one day left. All I had to do was get up and run 13 miles. And I woke up that morning and I was like, this is not a run day. And I went and took a nap instead. Um, and I, I think that was kind of the, like, yeah, you, you need to know what's best for your body and listen to that. Um, I will say the non-negotiable is consistency. Um, like I would like to see people at the minimum running four days a week and I would really recommend five or six. Um, I just think getting out there and, and being consistent, um, is, is a lot for, again, for that, just building the fitness component of it and also getting the legs ready for that. Um, other non-negotiables. Well, I guess you, you had questions, but, <laughs> um, well, well, so you said, I think you said you were in like 78 miles or so on average, but then you, it, leading up to the taper where you kind of peaked out, you were trying to get closer to a hundred miles per week. Right. But, but then, that, but then that last week you, those yeah. hundred mile weeks are in the average. So that means right. some of the earlier weeks had, you know, some 50, 60 mile weeks in there too. Okay. Cool. And when you're on, did you do like down weeks, uh, planned down weeks, like, you know, th build up three, take one down or something like that? I, I only do that with my long run. Um, mm -hmm. and so like the, the weekly stuff or the weekday stuff stayed pretty consistent. Um, but then there would be probably every third or fourth week where I'd just be like, look, I'm a little tired. I don't think it's good for me to go slog through 30 miles. Like let's make it 15 and then like, let's call it at that. Um, and then I, I would say that as I was trying to get into those hundred mile weeks, it's more, um, kind of like padding miles. So like if I did a speed workout and like normally my speed workout would be seven or eight to eight miles, the speed component would still stay the same, but the warm up and the cool down would get a little bit longer. And I'd put, you know, an extra mile in the beginning and an extra two miles in the end. So that on the day I was getting more like uh, 10 or 11 miles uh, for that workout. Um, and then, you know, same thing for some of like the midweek runs where it was like, oh, normally midweek, we would run eight to 10. We'll like make it 10 to 12. And that was kind of how I got that mileage up a little bit more. Um, as I kind of mentioned to you before this, like I, I like to have things done and checked off the box, you know, check off the box that are or check it off my list that I've done it for the day. And so like, I, I don't do a ton of doubles, um, like during the day, like, I just want to be like, 
especially when I was running at 6 a.m. or 5 a.m., it'd be like, yay, it's seven o'clock. I'm done. I don't even have to run. I don't even have to think about it for, for the rest of the day. So um, it was more like just to get the extra mileage, adding on a little bit to my standard routine. And I just kind of had like a standard, like training scaffolding, like Monday, I knew was going to be this kind of day. Tuesday was going to be this kind of day. Wednesday is a medium, medium long run day. Um, you know, one, and then Friday I did some Hills. And so then it was like, you could, you could just take that sort of workout and then make it a little bit longer or shorter as, as you needed. Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna guess with almost one hundred percent certainty that you didn't do doubles. That you weren't a double type of person. No. Uh, given the morning, you like to get it done in the morning. Um, I want it done. <laughs> so, so let's say again with the non-negotiables kind of thing, where it's like, you know, you have to get at least this in to uh, to say someone was ready. You know, like say you had your twin sister, and you're like, okay, look, I'm gonna. You got to do this. Um, what What about types of workouts? within that week or, you know, within a period or whatever. Yeah. So, um, my speed workout, like I said, I did with marathon runners and I did it on the track. It had nothing specific to do with Western States. It was just that I felt like I needed to get very fit, get your VO two max up, whatever. And that's going to help you with hill climbing and with just, um, avoiding fatigue towards the end and all these things anyway. Um, and then I did do the Friday hill workout that I said. And so, I think because of Western States, when you look at like what takes people out of a race like Western States, um, obviously there's the fueling, the GI issues. And then the next, probably the next biggest one is some of the, you know, the quad failure or the, you know, blown quads that people talk about. So, um, you know, then I would say, well, then what do you do in your training to ensure against those things um, going wrong on race day. And so, you know, I already talked about not doing the back-to-backs because one of the big issues was eating. Like, I want to get a fueling plan in my long run that works so that I can take it to Western States and hopefully not have those training problems. So I think that that's, to me, a non-negotiable. You've got to figure out a fueling plan that works. I don't care what that is, but like you got to know that it's going to work for you. And then uh, the the other one I think is, is the hill, the like having some quad strength, leg strength to endure those hills. And we've already talked a little bit about the weight training and sort of the hills. And that to me is the piece that's specific, the specific piece of the Western States or any mountain run training. Um, the rest of the runs, like, I pretty much did road runs around my neighborhood, around my town. They didn't have any major, ele- like notable elevation, notable footing, uh, nothing that you would say, you know, and most of the time in the spring here, it's very cool. It's not even a hot, we didn't even get hot weather. So like nothing that you would say is, oh, this is directly applicable to Western states, you know, or specifically to Western states. Um, it was just kind of those, those kind of like key little components. And that Friday, I think, did you say it was half marathon round trip uh, going up the hill and running no, back down? It's a half mile. Oh, half mile. Half mile, okay. half, half mile down. No, it's okay. short. It's short. She, it's, a, it's got 350 gain, feet of gain, starts oh, down nice. at the bottom, just goes up like the, you know, the hill. And uh, you go up the hill and you get up to the mailbox where it starts flatten out. You turn around and run back down. Nice. Do that. And, I don't think I ever did it more than five times either. Oh, cool. But you did it hard, probably coming down. 
Yeah, some, well, we would vary it. So some days we would run up it hard and then take it really easy downhill. Some days we would walk up it and then run it down hard. And mm -hmm. a couple of times we would even do the full circuit. Like you run up, turn around, like run up hard, run down hard, and then recover when you got to the bottom. And oh, then I see. Some mm -hmm. recovery. So it, we could do uphill repeats, we could do downhill repeats, or we could do like the full loop. Nice. Um, and it's just one hill. And I mean, it's, it's not, it's not an impressive hill. Like if you're a mountain runner and you'd come over and you'd scoff at it, you'd be like, this is not a mountain. And I'm like, no, it's a road in town. Like that's it. Nice. <laughs> but, but it served the purpose of getting my legs strong for the race. And that's to me, that's the non-negotiable piece of that, of that blown quad component. Mm -hmm. And, the. Uh... The track workout, uh, it sounds like you were doing VO2 max work. What, what did that look like uh, on the track? I, I do, like I said, I, I joined with a marathon group. So things mm -hmm. like the Yasso 800s, mile repeats, 400 meter repeats. Um, like it's, it's a track group and they run on the track and I don't set the workout. I don't try to tailor it to my needs. Mm -hmm. I do what they do. And like I said, I might warm up a little bit longer. I might cool down a little bit longer, but the actual workout is just whatever the local marathon trainers are putting on mm -hmm. their schedule for the week. Okay. Well, if you had to pick one that someone was going to do only one of those track workouts, what would you, what would you think would be the best one to pick for desert Island? You know, um, you know, I, I probably would go for sort of the, the medium distance one, something between like a, a 1200 or a mile repeat, or then maybe even up to a mile and a half, something like that. Um, just because I don't think, um, ultra runners quite as much need that top end 400 meter repeat type speed. Um, and so like something in those, those middle marks, I don't want to get much longer than that. It's one thing if you're doing, again, it's, it's this one and done kind of thing or the, the mental, the mental checklist. If you're doing things that are sort of two miles or longer, the actual interval gets so long for me that I get kind of like bored and frustrated with the, the interval. Oh. So if I'm going to do a tempo run, then I just want to go do like four to six miles and have it be one long tempo and then mm -hmm. be done with that so mm -hmm. i don't do a lot of those like tempo repeats it's just like right. kind of like my mentality of like what i enjoy and what i want to do um i know there's people that do the you know three by three miles or something like that at tempo pace and i, I, I don't <laughs> i don't yeah yeah <laughs> yeah good with, for the, like not me right and with so with the uh to say 1200 or mile repeats, would you say equal amount of rest or like just 400 of rest or something like that? We usually just do a 400, but at a very okay. slow jog, like the boxer type jog or whatever, mm -hmm. the shuffle mm -hmm. jog. So it's, it's a slow 400 and we always regroup. So like anybody that's uh, left. Oh. So you were saying you were saying you always wait for people to regroup in case they get left behind. It's a no drop track run. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's on the track, right? So right. And it and how far apart can people get within that time? Yeah. Where up? did you go, Billy? Where yeah. is he? <laughs> but uh, we we do all try to start together stuff. So nice. Okay, what about the type and volume of heat training? Yeah. 
So I think I probably differ a little bit from people on this too. So I do 100% passive heat training. Um, Passive heat training, meaning you just sit in the heat and get hot. Active heat training, meaning you actually do something active while you're hot. So these are the people that um, either do jumping jacks in the sauna or more commonly they put on their puffy jackets and go out for a run, you know, put on 10 layers of clothes and then run. And so for me, uh, it's, it's just the passive, like I want to be able to train at my maximum and, and at uh, the most efficient, if I'm wearing like five puffy jackets, I like, that's not going to happen for me. Like I'm going to get less out of that workout. Um, and so what I tried to do, that is one where I did try to time it like immediately after. So when my, my core body temperature is already a little bit up from the workout, then I would just get into the sauna and then sit in the sauna. Um, I would try to work up to about 40 or 45 minutes, um, just, just reading, but I start out at like 20 to 25 minutes and it takes me a lot. Like, I don't know. I think your body senses that there's some sort of danger going on when your core temperature goes up. And like, there's almost like this moment of panic where you're like, I need to get out of here. And so the initial phases of that, like in the first getting in the sauna, I think you have to kind of like teach yourself, like you're still in control. You're still okay. You're going to start sweating. You're going to be fine. Um, and it's, uh, so like getting through that is kind of the, the component of the, the heat training that I find the, the, the hardest, obviously it adds some time because if you're doing, you know, an hour workout or an hour and a half workout, and then you've got to add 40 minutes of sauna, you've got to have a lot of extra t- time to this. But I do, like I said, I do find that the passive training, if you're going to go immediately just into a sauna without working out those first 10, 15 minutes, you're spending raising your body temperature. So you're really not getting the effect of it. So you either got to stay in there longer, which means even more time or, um, uh, or like I said, or like people will start to work out in, in the sauna, but, um, I kind of just have to like tune out. I don't want to be focusing on exercising. I think that that would just exacerbate that feeling of like, I need to get out of here now. Um, and so I just try to read like, um, <laughs> very brainless uh, reading material. Pe- People magazine is a favorite. Yeah. Stapled magazines, not glued ones. Absolutely stapled. Yeah. And like when ultra running magazine got big enough that they're, or, or got popular enough that their magazine then um, like outgrew the stapled binding, it became much, much harder to use that in, in yeah. the um, sauna. Yeah. Well, then you're just making wrapping paper, you know, you're just pulling it <laughs> apart. And, um, it's more like wet, gloppy messes. Uh, of, yeah. Paper mache. Yeah. yeah. Take a balloon in there with you. You yeah. can make a pinata. Um, and then how long uh, over weeks would you say to build up for enough? Yeah. So um, I only try to get about 12 to 14 sessions in totally total. And that usually fits in perfectly with the period where I'm starting to taper. Um, for most big races, if I'm doing really high mileage, then I'll do a a three week taper or at least start to cut down on things. And so, um, yeah, I, I usually just try for about three weeks worth of, of sauna time. And I go, um, again, like five to six days a week. Um, so it, it gets to be, like I said, at least 12 or 14 would be kind of the minimum, but I don't go for months on end. Hardcore. You're hardcore. (laughs) 
It's stressful doing that. And so with your, with your taper, what does that look like with a, with three week taper, like say leading in the Western States, is that a large drop in volume or is it kind of easy drop off and then get deeper? Yeah, no, I usually from my peak mileage drop from the the first week for to like 55 to 60% of my mileage. And then the second week, about 35% of my peak mileage. So it's a pretty easy week. And then the race week, I am very light. I usually do um, maybe like on a Monday, I do something like five miles with like I, I would usually do like six 400s and not at a fast 400 pace. So I call them cruise 400s just to like kind of get your legs turning over. And then I'll do like a three miler and a three miler and then that's it. And I often will take the day or even two days off before a race. I think you'll feel maybe a little bit rusty, but like I don't really care if I need two or three miles to warm up on the race day. I'd rather be rested for that. And so like just to be rested, if I am going to get out, it's not going to be for more than 20 minutes on those two days before the race. So very, very low mileage race week. Four and eight. So, yeah. Right, right. <clears throat> That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, I think leading in, the the week leading in, it seems like, a lot of people who I respect like yourself have are like rest is king, you know, like, and, uh, and, and sleeping is the best version of that. So if you can sleep before that, that's great. Yeah. Um, And again, I think that goes back to the, the confidence component that we were talking about. Like at that week, you just have to have the confidence. So like everything you've done up to then is enough and you're not gonna, like, you're not going to be able to improve on that in that last week. Yeah, you just got to practice your strut for like the packet pickup, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Rehearse it for the uh, podium. <clears throat> um, so, you know, it seems like from what I've discovered about you, you have a candy centric f- focus uh, on nutrition. <laughs> when it comes to, you know, I've seen things thrown around like licorice and sun kissed, or um, can, it, can you kind of talk about the nutrition? leading up to the race in training, I guess. And then, you know, for the race, let's talk about, you know, but with a more of a focus on something like Western States, since most people are really familiar with that race. Yeah, no, uh, I think ultra runner podcast used to always end their interviews and they would say, what's your favorite beer? And I'd be like, I, I I'm not, I'm not, I'm not into the alcohol thing. Like ask me what my favorite candy bar is, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, I think the sugar is, is something that I, I enjoy eating. And so like, it's something that I have worked into the race nutrition. Um, I think one thing I, I had talked to you about earlier was that uh, like, for me, it's kind of like fitness is fitness. I also agree. Calories are calories, you know? And so, mm-hmm. you know, the best calorie you can eat during the race is the calorie that you will eat, you know? And I think there's a lot of great, um, sports products that are made out there, but then they taste disgusting or they do after four or five, you know, my, or four or five hours of using them. And you're like, I am not going to eat another one of these pasty or chalky things. And, but you're like, Oh, but I have to, because it's got the, like the perfect formula for running an ultra. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. you know, what also has the perfect formula for running an ultra red licorice and Sprite. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I sometimes find those to be way more palatable. They're still like all the carbs and sugar that you need to run. Um, and so like soda is a big one for me. 
I, I really like soda, especially as a hot race. If you can get an ice cold soda, like that is just so refreshing. And I'm actually not a soda drinker in real life. Like I don't drink a lot of soda, um, but like in a race, I'm like, oh, just give me a soda to drink. Ugh. And like orange yeah. soda, root beer, like I love that stuff. And um and I often find that like the stickiness of sports products is very unappealing to me, like in my mouth to have that like <laughs> sticky sugar, but like to get that sugar, um, like a lot of times the candy seems more appealing to me. And so I joke about the Sprite and the red licorice, but that's literally what I got through 85 miles of run rabbit run on. Um, I mean, and it worked fine. Like I, you know, I, I, that race was hard for me because coming from such low ele- elevation and having young kids, I didn't have the time to do the sort of the acclimation and whatever. And I got into some sort of like some altitude stomach issues really early. And, um, so some of the stuff that I, some of the sports products that I do use, like, I was like, no, like I'm sick right now. I don't want to feel it. And it was like, oh, we'll have some Sprite. And I was like, actually, this is delicious. And I had already packed some red licorice. I'm like, well, I can just chew on those. Those don't affect. And I was like, well, this is working for me. I'll just keep using it. And I was eating it. Like I was getting the calories in. And like, I think that's what happens with the ultra running and the GI stuff is like, you start to feel bad or you don't like the flavor of your stuff and you stop eating it. Well, nothing's going to go better when you stop eating. (laughs) So, uh, so that's why I'm like, if there is something that you like, that's like grocery store food and you will eat it, like, go ahead and do that. Like, don't, don't say like, oh, but the electrolyte content isn't quite Uh, right in my uh, Snickers bar or whatever. Be like, no, if if you're going to eat that, like you go ahead and eat that. So, um, yeah, so I do that. I also find that those sports products, especially the goos and the the packages are incredibly expensive. And, you know, the, the Walmart fun fruits are, are something like 20 cents a pack. And so when you're talking $2 a gel versus 20 cents, um, like, especially in a training run, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not spending 20 bucks on a training run for my, yeah. <laughs> my fuel. $7 like, a gel sometimes, you know, yeah. easily. Uh, I, I can just, I can just use the little, like the little, uh, like Welch's fun fruits or even the generic, like I said, the Walmart brand or something. And they're super cheap and they're super tasty. They're just as portable. Um, so yeah, fun fruits is a, a big one for me or the fruit snacks, whatever you call those. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. I went to uh, some grocery store shopping for my 200 miler. I was in the candy aisle. This guy was stocking the candy aisle. I said, man, there's so much stuff here. You got anything you recommend? And he starts giving me this business like, oh, you know, chia seeds, the idea, whatever. I was like, don't talk to me. Get out of my face, dude. Like, I was like, we're on the candy aisle. Look at this. And this one was like huge. It was like, you know, it was like two aisles that it kept going on. Yeah. I was like, get out of here with that mess. I'm here to eat jelly beans and chocolates. Yeah. Uh, Ferrero yeah, Rocher's. And... The other one that's not candy, but that I really like are the Pringles. I'm a big mm-hmm. fan of the Pringles, more so than the other potato chips. And I know the other potato chips are not as processed as a Pringle, but like something about chewing on those Pringles and having it like just be able to be like it a dissolves. tasty gum and it, right, it <laughs> dissolves, you eat it and it's kind of salty when you're craving that salty, that salty snack. And so, yeah, it's another one. I that think you're... I think you're onto something there because I do prefer the mouthfeel of regular potato chips, but I think the Pringles are some goo 
that gets sliced up and that is easily becomes that goo once you put it in your mouth. Yeah. And there's no pointy edges that like poke you right, with the, the right. roof of your mouth or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's the way to go with potato chips on race day. Nice. Let's talk about something technical here. Let's talk about cooling. One of the things that you that you said, and I'm glad you said it because I felt like the odd man out on this one, is putting the band, putting the ice bandana in the front. I was like, hey, that's where your jugular is, man. Don't you want to put the ice there? What's what's in the back of your neck? I don't get it. Yes. So, uh, so yeah, speak to yeah. The, the cooling, the pre-cooling, and then the other cooling, the in, in-race cooling. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't do any, like, pre-cooling, like, race fests and stuff. Most of these okay. races, even Western States or Angeles Crest, they all start at 5 a.m. in a sort of a mountain town, which tends to be fairly cool at, when mm-hmm. you're starting. So it's not, like you need to get cooler than you already are. Like I usually show up to the Western States starting line in a puffy jacket because it's that cold out. So, mm-hmm. um, but I do say, uh, you know, my advice is to get cool before you get hot, meaning that you should start your cooling, um, all of the, the procedures and things that you're going to be doing before you're like, Oh, I'm overheating or, Oh, I'm getting really hot. And so for me, that's usually about nine o'clock at Western States, which is kind of the first time where you can see crew that's at Duncan Canyon. It's I think 24 miles in or something. And so like, I always start taking ice and the ice bandanas at that point in the race, even though the sun is like still not at its hottest, you still got a lot hotter to go. But I don't want to get to the point where it's kind of, it's kind of like fueling. You don't want to get to the point where you're bonking and then try to recover from that. Same thing with heat. You don't want to get to the point where you're overheated and then try to recover from that. So it's like, what can you do to cool yourself down before you start getting that, that heat um, or getting your body temperature way up? Um, so that's that. And, and one of those things is a nice bandana for me, like you mentioned. Um, and there's plenty of, of professionally made ones out there and they're wonderful products. And I've used the dollar store one that you just take your sewing and stitch up the sides and it's just the bandana. Um, and I do wear it in so that the ice is in the front, like you were saying. And for exactly why you were saying that, because the point of this is to cool your core temperature and you're circulating blood as much as possible. And just like you said, your major arteries are here in the front of your neck and your heart right here in your chest. So if you can get your ice here, you're cooling all of your blood that is flowing through this, which is basically a major portion of your blood. And you're getting that blood cooled down and then that's going to the other parts. You put it here, you're basically cooling your neck, which will keep you a little bit cooler, but it's not going to do that. She motions to the back of the neck. Is it mostly to the back of your neck? Sorry. Oh, yeah. Uh, put that to the back of your neck, but um, it's going to cool the back of your neck. You're going to be a little bit cooler, but you're still not getting that, um, like the systemic effects where your whole blood volume is staying cooler. And so that's. Why do you- why do you think people put it on the back of their neck? Oh, because it's way more comfortable to run that way. I think okay. because it's it bounces. And so that's the other benefit of having a pack with a strap. So I actually put the um, mm-hmm. the ice bandana down and then I strap my pack over it to keep it from bouncing. Um, the other way that, that women can do is if you put it the right way, you can actually stuff the ice bandana into your sports bra and then the mm-hmm. sports bra, the compression for that will keep that from bouncing around. But no, if you run with it, uh, like on tethered and just let it in front of your face, like it's bouncing up and hitting you in the right. face. And then you hear the ice jingling or, you know, like the, the clunking of the ice cubes. It's super annoying. 
Um, so I, I think it's it's not really that like fun to run with it that way. But going back to it, like it's not necessarily about the how fun or how functional. It also looks funny. Like if you really put put, right. uh, put that full of ice and you've got that right in front of you, it, it's like you've got like this huge goiter or something that you're running with, and it's it's not real attractive for pictures and other things. And, right. But again, I'm not winning, trying to win beauty contests out there. Well, yeah, not till you get on the track, right? Then you gotta put on your put on your clean shirt and all that. And, yeah. yeah, yeah. The uh, yeah, that all sounds good. So, the, yeah, I saw, I did see this one bandana, and maybe this could be rigged so to do what you're talking about, but like wear it on the front. Is they have this one where it's like, it's got you know, you put all the ice in the back, but then on the front, it's got some thing so you can attach it to your to your chest strap so that it. Um, doesn't pull as far down your neck or whatever. I don't know. I always just get mine really tight, and I, but but I'm also not putting like a monster thing of ice. I'm putting just like I don't know, yeah, thirty cubes of ice, and then I'm putting it in a cotton bandana. So then the evaporative cooling thing works, so it keeps the ice there a lot longer than say like some kind of polyester or whatever. Um, yeah, the cotton. That's another thing that you've employed. I love, the, I love my cotton. You know that. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, yeah I'm a, I I completely sweat like crazy, so it's for me it's it's always a concern the heat. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a concern, but also the sweating is actually a cooling mechanism, so in some way that's a benefit as well. Like obviously you need to keep your hydration up, but that that sweat is serving to cool you. Uh. Yeah, I guess. I think I do <laughs> I think I do a little extra than than is than is necessary or efficient for cooling. Uh <laughs> And I certainly, it's tough to, it can be tough to, you know, drink close to a liter, you know, per hour if you're trying to replace all that. Ugh. And then your shoes, your toes are wet because it's like you're sweating directly onto your feet. You know what I mean? And so it's like, of course, I guess it's like that with, it seems like with Western states, you got to be ready to just be wet the whole time anyways, whether it's like in the high country, you got the snow and then the rest of it, people are going to be pouring water on you, stuffing you with ice. Um, yeah, like there's you... several stream crossings as well. And, you know, your shoes will drain the water so you're not running in a puddle of water shoes, but the shoe and the sock itself will stay wet for a lot longer than you would think in those conditions. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, wet feet, um, that's that's definitely going to be something you're dealing with there. Did you ever train for something like that? Did you ever train your feet? Like, um no, I know people talk about running in the weird shoes and everything like that. And, um, you know, I've been I, I, I kind of fortunate that I don't haven't gotten a lot of skin blisters until recently at Badwater. I had the worst like balls on my feet blisters ever, but I do lose my toenails and I get the blisters under my toenails and oh. yeah, they're awful. Um, and I even tried to have my toenails surgically removed. And like, even that was kind of a, like, these toenails are stubborn. They just come back and like, I don't know like what's going on, but they're like, yeah, hey, we're more stubborn than you are. And so, um, wow. most, most of them have grown back, but if I do enough training, they'll usually fall off in training or if I do a pre-race. So like my best, my best prevention for that is to have already had it happen and then to just go into the race without a lot of toenails. And then I don't have to deal with that issue. Um, but I, I've done a little bit of taping with some of the toe stuff, or if I know that I have um, an area that like, I think is going to be a problem, like the back of the heel or something like that. But like, I don't do any training for my feet. Like there's a certain amount of st struggling and suffering that just, 
just feels like <laughs> suffering for suffering's sake and I don't yeah. need to do it. So, yeah. Well, I, for me, I guess, you know, for, I think a lot of people, they get, they get blisters often. And so I think they maybe get used to it and they kind of like, this is how you deal with it. Or that, you know, they start off pre-taping and lubing or whatever they do, so, but I'm don't get blisters. So I just, uh, I'm scared. Yeah. And so like, I, you know, try to walk around barefooted as much as I can. And then I remember training for a bighorn. I, uh, before I would do my long run, I'd go put on all my clothes and then I'd go in the bathtub and just fill my shoes up with water and then go run with wet feet. And then, uh, <laughs> luckily it rained for like 14 hours that year. Yeah. So, uh, and I was like, oh, this isn't so bad, you know? And like I said, I get hot. So standing in ankle deep water, freezing cold water, I was like, this is blissful. I love this. And everyone else was like freezing to death. And so, um, but, and, you know, I don't know if that training did, helped or did, not. I was just going to say, did it pay off? <laughs> well, I didn't get any blisters. So I guess so there. But yeah. I haven't gotten any blisters in that 200 and I didn't do that, you know? Yeah. But uh, yeah. But I do pay a, a lot of attention to like, my shoes have to be way wider than, you know, they have to be plenty wide, plenty long. I'll get long and longer shoes than I need if I need to just to avoid my toes touching the ends. And then I try to get thicker socks than I would care for just so it can kind of pull that moisture away from the foot yeah, uh, rather than keeping it right there. Yeah. No, I do some of those things too, which are just, I think, good practice, but not necessarily like I don't have to train for them. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, Okay. I think you've, you've given me all the Western state stuff before. I know I've kept you on longer than I asked for. Do you have a few more minutes? Yeah. So are you going to, are you going to go do 24 hours again? I would like to, um, mm-hmm. I, I would like to, I don't think, like I said, you know, kind of seeing what was my past and where was I before? Like it's probably not going to be that I'm ever going to get back to being 150 plus miler in 24 hours. And I think I'm, more or less okay with that now, but you know, we do, it still would be, I think, um, something that would be an accomplishment to me if I could say that I at least put up a team qualifier, even if it's not one of the top six that makes the team to be like, look, I'm still putting up kind of like whatever the national class, um, you know, minimum is for that distance. And so uh, right now that's 125 miles. And it's one of these things that like for somebody who does math and, and, you know, you start to work with the paper and you, you, you do it all out and you're like, okay, that's like, five miles an hour or just a little bit more than five miles an hour. And you're like, God, shouldn't that be so easy? You know? Mm-hmm, <laughs> and mm-hmm. the thing is, is, is it's not, you know, it's not. And so um, I think again, like you kind of said about the age component of it and being wiser, like I think that I have the, like sort of the tools and the mental plan that I can like figure that out and should be able to accomplish that. But I'm still left with this little bit of a mystery because I am coming off of, uh, you know, a medical procedure and injury and that kind of stuff. And so I haven't tested myself um, and haven't been running long, long mileage. So, um, you know, I did 55 miles last week, which um, seems to be good. But like I that's one week, you know, and that's been my biggest week in the last like year and a half. And so now more than anything, I think rather than the test being 
can I get through the 24 hours? The test is going to be, can I get through the training or can I endure that training that I need to do to even say that I'm ready to be on that starting line? So that that's actually what I'm kind of looking at right now. You know, I, I'm, I'm definitely eyeing different races, but I'm not about to sign up for anything because my current challenge or my current goal is to like be able to train and to train well. And even if that doesn't mean the 70, 90, 100 mile weeks, but like to be able to consistently do 55 mile weeks or something, you know? And so like one week doesn't get you, doesn't get you there. doesn't say that you're there yet. So, um, I feel like I'm, I probably need six to seven weeks to then just say like, okay, look, I, my body is handling this. Like I'm ready to possibly go a little bit further or commit to, to an ultra. So yeah, I would love, I would love to get back there. Um, you know, it's awesome being the manager and, and being able to give back and still be involved. But at the end of the day, there's also that FOMO component. Like yeah. in my heart, I am an athlete and I want to be out there. You're like so, somebody hold my manager's head. I got a race to go run. <laughs> so, you know, like even if I can't do it at worlds, it would be really nice to be able to do it in some other venue, you know, domestically here. And there's several great 24 hour races and some of them very competitive as well. And so to be able to participate in that is like, yeah, no, I, I still, I still, would like to do that you know it's a it's it's just a very interesting format and I, I really enjoy it and I I like seeing you know like what people can do out there including myself so, so would that be jackpot or would that be desert solstice no jackpot's too early for me like okay. I like I said, this is my first week that I really even consider to be a training week. And like, like I said, I, I'm looking at six to seven weeks before I even feel like I have some sort of fitness space. So, um, you know, uh, right now they they have an elite field or an invitational field for one of the days at the dome. Um, so potentially going to the dome, um, at the indoor, uh, venue there. Um, is that 400 meters or is that 200? It's a weird, it's 443 meters. Oh, okay. Um, so it's technically a road race. Um, because Oh, really? Uh. Yes. So it's it's actually considered a road. It is a track, but it's because... And it's, it's indoors. A, an indoor road race. <laughs> it's an indoor road certified race on a rubberized track that is different than your normal rubberized track because it's much smoother and it doesn't have to endure the weather. And so it's, right. it's, it's all very weird. It's, it's a very different uh, scenario. Temperature controlled. It is temperature controlled. That's very nice. Um, although the temperature is is cold, it's about fifty two to fifty five degrees somewhere in there. So, um, but it's it's if you're running, it's a nice temperature. If you get into a little bit of a lull or a walking break, it gets very cold very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and then you know I've I've been to dawn to dusk to dawn. Um, it's a track race in Pennsylvania. Um, but I think probably long term, I'd, I'd be even considering like desert solstice, going back to desert solstice. Um, that just seems to be like a great venue and probably the most the place where um, we've had the most uh, like big performances coming out of as a 24 hour race. Because the next uh, 24 hour worlds would be 2025. Is that right? Yeah, it's going to be October 25th in Albi. It's going back to France. And so okay. it'll be 2025. Oh, nice. So um, the qualifying window is actually open and through May of 2025. Oh, wow. Yeah. Look, you're going to make it. Look, I got three reasons why. Okay. First, first of all, uh, you're bad at predicting your future. <laughs> Maybe I'm not built for 100 miles. Yeah. 
uh, you know, like maybe I'm too old, maybe it's past me. So you're bad at predicting that, you know, how awesome you're about to do. Number two, you have a new and improved hamstring. So you got this bionic strength, performance enhancing hamstring. And three, I think you really want to. Yeah, I think the motivation component is back. And I think that's big for me. Um, and I, I had to give a huge shout out to, like I said, um, you know, just, just watching Stella Springer, she's 51. She was at world. She had a phenomenal performance. She was actually second in the world for her age group. Um, and she just toughed it out. And again, kind of speaking to that, no excuses, you know, she's older than me. She's out there. She's on the team. Like it's not to say that it's too old. And, um, you know, I've had the, I've been good friends with Megan Canfield for a long time. She was running on the hundred K team, uh, into her late fifties. And so, uh, you know, Olympic, it's like, qual- Olympic trials qualifier when she was 52. Yeah. So, she ruined, I, she, yeah, she broke like, the bell I, curve I for us. I don't have that caliber of speed, but at the same time, like there are people that like, again, that 50 year thing is not necessarily where you're like, oh, I'm too old for this because there's people that are out there and they're setting an example of the, how the hard work pays off even in your Mm -hmm. fifties. So yeah, that was the other thing that I was going to say is probably in your favor is having coming off of injury is that, you know, you've got all this rehab that you've been doing. So you're probably very cautious about what you're doing. And then also with the training, you're being very cautious. And like you said, you don't, you're not working up to get, you know, six minute miles. You're working up to like, you know, 12 something or 11 something, you know, you just got to be able to string it together. And so, you know, stringing together consistency, it seems like this is kind of in your, in your wheelhouse. And uh, yeah, so I think you're, I think you're well suited. I I expect to see you in France. <laughs> Hopefully, I'll be there one way or the other. If I can't, then I, I would certainly uh, go as the manager again. Yeah, cool. Well, thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you so much to Pam for coming on the show and sharing all that knowledge, folks. Please, please, please write a review on iTunes or Spotify and share this episode so that other people can benefit from this knowledge. Does no good if no one finds it. Uh, Please, pretty please, and thank you.